Thank you for the warm welcome. It's great to be back at Connect again and uh, probably to meet some of you who I haven't met before. But welcome from the mainland and particularly from Timaru. Some people say to me, Timaware. I just walk away from that conversation. <laughs> well, we're going to get right into it this morning because I've got a, a, a great message, I believe, uh, to share with you this morning. Uh, that is just sitting strong in my heart. How many would like a word from God this morning? Yeah. How many would love, you know, like if I said to you, I've got a word for you, would you like to know what that, you know, you, you would love it if I would just prophesy over all of you and then you could go out into your week and you'd know, I know what God wants me to do. Well, I've got a word for you, for every single one of you this morning. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and then fasten your seatbelt. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, on your device, in your hard copy. I still love the hard copy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, here's the word of God for you this morning. You ready for it? It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Really? That's that's the word you got for me this morning? Yeah, I have. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. I've got that underlined in black. That's not a red underlining there. That's a warning. As we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. If you wake up one morning and you're wondering, what has God got for me? It's to live a holy life. What does that mean? Get to know Jesus and he'll show you. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Father, I pray as we just seek to open this up this morning, that your Holy Spirit would be active, moving up and down the rows, uh, along the, up and down the aisles, along the rows, and just interacting with each individual here, because you want to speak to each person here this morning. May they have ears to hear what your Spirit is saying. In Jesus' name. Sanctified, what an incredibly big word. Just simply means set apart for sacred use. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, your body is now the temple of the living God. You were purchased with a price. You are no longer your own. Sanctified just means to consecrate, to purify. This book of Thessalonians was addressed to a fledgling church full of new followers of Christ who had thoroughly embraced the teachings of Jesus. 
and that surrendered to his lordship. It's a book full of hope for believers as it tells of God's work through the Spirit in us. And for the life that is promised to all Christian believers when Jesus returns to this earth, which he will do one day. Thessaloniki is today the second most important city in Greece. In the early first century, Thessaloniki was a thriving center of commerce and philosophy, the arts and the emperor cult of the Roman Empire, where Caesar was believed to be divine and to be worshipped. Status was determined by how much money you had, how you dressed, and what you owned. I don't think too much has changed. Women during this time had very few rights. They were considered inferior to men. Marriage was viewed very differently than we view it today. Marriage wasn't based on romance, but rather it was an economic negotiation between families. Try that one today. Wives were for providing an heir and managing the household. There appeared to be no concept of intimacy in the marriage relationship. You see, for intimacy in those times, a man sought a mistress. Someone who he not only had sex with, but who he could talk with and be intellectually stimulated. And then there were prostitutes for the fulfillment of self-focused sexual desire. So it's into this cultural milieu, this, this cultural context that Paul instructs these new Thessalonian believers about their sexuality. And man, do we need some, some guidance today about our sexuality. I don't know when you last heard a sermon about sex in church. He just... See, God created us with an awareness of three things, desire, identity, and needs. And our response to those three things, desire, identity, and needs, is influenced by which narrative we are listening to. There are three narratives. There's the cultural narrative. It's self-focused. You hear it every day. You just need to turn on the news, turn on the TV, go to a movie, read a magazine, you see the cultural narrative is coming at you all the time. Our culture tells us that sexual desires are natural and good. They find fulfillment through mutual consent where sex is treated as just another form of recreation. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Just follow your desire. The cultural narrative is that we're identified by our attractions and desires. My name and gender identification are important because it is my identity. It is who I am. And so our need to feel loved, which is often physical, is attained by whatever brings us pleasure. Just follow your desires follow your needs. What are they saying to you? So how is this worked out in culture? 
I love how Jonathan Grant, the author of Divine Sex, he writes this, the cruel irony is that contemporary men and women view intimate relationships as essential to their personal identity, but they struggle to commit themselves fully to these same relationships. Dr. Jim Dennison said it like this, Tragically, our culture is rejecting God's intention for sex more than ever before. Adultery is celebrated in popular television shows, music, and movies. Sex before marriage and cohabitation are assumed. Abortion is viewed as birth control. Pornography is at epidemic levels, not to mention the escalation and promotion of LGBTQ ideology beginning with our children. This is not a message I want to go and preach in the marketplace because I would be harassed, harangued, and abused for being so old-fashioned and out of date and obsolete. But that is the cultural narrative. You are immersed in that. Then we come to the purity narrative, which has been a response to the cultural narrative. The cultural narrative is so self-focused. It's all about me. As long as I don't hurt anybody, it's all about me. Fulfill my desires, my needs, my wants. The purity narrative for the Christian is works-focused. So you see, we've got, to do, we've got to respond to this. We've got to be holy. We've got to be sanctified. How do we do that? Well, the purity narrative refers to an evangelical movement that emerged in the 1990s, which emphasized not having sex before marriage. You shouldn't date or even kiss someone unless you were sure you were going to marry them. Sexual thoughts, most physical contact, and sex outside of marriage were elevated to unforgivable sins. And the purity culture was well-intentioned, but it was a reaction to the sexual promiscuity of the previous decades. It was more focused on what you were doing or not doing, which reduced it to a works-based lifestyle. Can I please God by my works? Oh, we won't get into the theology of that. Yes, we can, we can, but when we are totally focused on our works and there is no faith, it amounts to nothing. Instead of a spirit-led lifestyle, we get focused on what we're doing or not doing, and that becomes our measure. Sure, there was a Jesus focus in the purity narrative, but it was overshadowed by the overemphasis on what you did and how you beat yourself up. And we've sang about releasing shame this morning. And, and young people particularly would be filled with shame because they hadn't lived up to the expectations, especially around their sexuality. And then there's a biblical narrative. Jesus focused. This is the narrative we want to follow. In Genesis 1.27 we read, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God created you and me as sexual beings. He intended sex to be a celebration of intimacy and the means by which our planet would be filled with more people created in his image. 
God's intention for sex is clear, Genesis 2.24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Jesus reinforced this and presented a clear picture of marriage when he quoted the verse in Matthew when he was questioned by Pharisees about divorce. Jesus said this, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. So Jesus is reinforcing Genesis and the two are united in one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. It's God's intention that a man and a woman come together in intimate relationship. They become one spiritually, socially, physically, sexually. In every way, they become one. And then God's word is clear about how we, how we look after and manage our sexuality. He says there's no place for sex outside of marriage. Some young people, that's the first time you've heard that. Hebrews 13 verse 4, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Man, do we need an awareness that it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God if we've not repented of our sin. The Bible's also clear there's no place for sex before marriage. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1 and 2. Yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Sexual desire is a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. Next to the drive to survive, the number one human drive, there is the powerful sexual drive. If that was eliminated, this would be the last generation. So thank God for sexual desire. And it's intended, as we've seen, to be expressed physically between a husband and a wife committed together in marriage. And that love is intended to bring pleasure, to unify a couple, to bring comfort, to bring healing. Sexual behavior is to be holy. We should elevate sexual Intimacy as something that is beautiful and pure and a gift from God to us. And we align it to a life that's following Jesus. It's to be honorable. It's to be respectful of the other person as well as of any other people who might be affected by that relationship. Our spouse, children or future spouse. And so Paul is calling for an other-centered focus rather than a self-centered focus. And the biblical narrative tells us that our identity is not found in our sexuality. Our sexuality does not define who we are. Our identity is found in being a child of the almighty living God. Because that is who you are. Listen to 1 John 3 verse 1 from the um, contemporary English version. Think how much the Father loves us. He loves us so much that he lets us be called his children, as we truly are. Who's your dad? 
Oh, my dad is the king of the universe. He's the living God. But since the people of this world did not know who Christ is, they don't know who we are. The Bible is also clear. All other sexual immorality is to be avoided. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 that we've read. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid porneia, sexual immorality. You can see that that Greek word there is where we get our word pornography. It's a general term here for virtually any type of sexual sin, including prostitution, adultery, or fornication. Fornication is just simply sex involving individuals who are not married. Now this raises the question, because now same-sex marriage is legal. So where does that fit in? What do we do with same-sex attraction? LGBTQI plus gender identifiers. Can I say this? Please treat people with whom you disagree. And when they disagree with you, treat them with respect and dignity. Because they are people who God loved and Christ died for. It is a clash of worldviews. It's a clash of narratives. Do not tell people they are wrong. Do not pull out your Romans verse or your Corinthians verse or your Leviticus verse and say, well, the Bible says you know. Well, no, they don't know and they don't believe. So don't inflict upon them your morality as a follower of Jesus. They don't know Jesus. Their thinking is informed by the cultural worldview they hold to. Instead, ask them what they believe about the origins of the world. What do you believe about God? I don't believe in God. Please tell me. Help me understand. What does the God that you don't believe in look like? Ask them about their spiritual beliefs. What, what are your spiritual beliefs? And just listen. Just listen. Ask them about their journey. How long have you identified as such and such? Or what was the, the journey that brought you to that? And you just listen. And if they don't ask you what you believe, don't tell them. Show that you love them by sharing and expressing an interest in them and their journey. And if they know you're a Christian, at some stage they will ask you, so what do you believe? You Christians say that. Now you get into a conversation. You've built relational currency together and you get involved in talking and sharing and loving them. Let me just share about Christopher Wan. Christopher Wan is the professor of exegesis and theology at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. He's also author of a book called Holy Sexuality. 
And prior to being a professor of theology and author, he was in jail for doing drugs, dealing drugs. He was three months away from graduation with a doctorate in dentistry from the University of Kentucky when he was arrested for drug dealing. He was involved in the gay scene and would go to the gay bars and have different hookups each time. And he says, I brought into the lie that I was what I was attracted to. He was in jail for a six-year term when he picked up a Gideon's Bible that somebody had disposed of into the rubbish bin. He had nothing else to do, so he began to read it and encountered Jesus. And he discovered that God cares for and loves all people and doesn't define them by what they are attracted to. But to people, he is a person created in the image of God. And he became a born-again Christian. Professor Wan is still same-sex attracted and yet believes the Bible teaches this is not how God designed him to function. It's not the best way for him to live. And so he remains celibate to this day, believing that to glorify Christ is more important than fulfilling his own physical desires. Let me tell you about vicar Sam Albury. He's an ordained minister in the Church of England based at St. Mary's Church in Maidenhead in the UK. And he was recently elected to serve on the General Synod of the Anglican Church in the UK. He's written several books. One of his best-selling books is God Anti-Gay. Sam stood up in the Anglican General Synod in the UK in February 2017, and he passionately delivered an appeal defending traditional marriage before the Synod that instantly went viral. It sparked quite a bit of conversation amongst Christians in the UK and beyond. He said the Christian understanding of marriage is hugely important. Jesus himself taught that marriage is between a man and a woman and that any sexual activity outside of this context is sinful. And he believes it's essential to follow Jesus' words and he discussed the fact that he himself is same-sex attracted. You can use the term SSA. And that only sexual desires and feelings that he's ever had are toward other men rather than women. And he wasn't trying to justify his own desires. He believes that any inappropriate desire must be fought against. And he went on to distinguish between temptation and sin in, in his speech. And he said, temptation is not a sin. We need to ask God to help us stand faithfully under any temptation. So you see, the wider biblical narrative shows us that the union between a man and a woman is actually a picture of the union of heaven and earth in Christ. Our marriages are to point to the ultimate marriage of Christ and his church. And Sam Albury concluded his speech and he said, marriage is meant to visualize the gospel. To redefine it will distort the gospel it is meant to portray. We need to stand fast. We need to know what we believe and why and then extend understanding to those who disagree with us. Sam Albury also wants everybody to realize that every individual is sexually fallen. If I played a video this morning, just randomly chose videos out of your head of your sexual activity, I think we'd empty the building before the video started. 
Jesus offers restoration and power and forgiveness to help us overcome. Rosaria Butterfield was also a same-sex attracted lady. She's a former professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University. She was converted to Christ in 1999. Uh, she's a wonderful lady. Go read some of her works. But listen to what Rosaria says. Since the fall of Adam, the human heart has set itself in defiance against God's authority. This defiance has taken different forms throughout the ages. In the not-so-distant past, we blamed the devil for our sexual passions. The devil made me do it. With the onset of the theological negligence of neo-orthodoxy, we have created a generation of Christians who blame the Holy Spirit for their sinful desires. God made me this way, and it's proof of good fruit when I act in accordance with my heart's desires. That is contrary to Scripture. Thus, from the epoch of late modernity onward, the gospel is on a collision course with the idol of sexual freedom. Let me wrap up this morning. Man, we could just unpack all of this in so much more depth. But first, as we close, here's the takeaways. Choose Jesus as Lord. Kyle gave a very beautiful, challenging testimony this morning of his encounter with Jesus. Jesus can change your life then be led by the Holy Spirit. That is the biblical narrative. Not by a list of rules of things now you must do. You must go to church. You must read your Bible. You must pray. You must have no bad thoughts, no evil, bad sexual thoughts. And, and then you tick off. No, be led by the Spirit. Is this honoring God? Is this honoring the body that is now the temple of the Holy Spirit? This is not my body to do with as I please. This body belongs to Jesus. He paid for it with his life. Thirdly, put on your running shoes. If you haven't got running shoes, go and get some. And you don't have to go and run around the block or start jogging. This is what you're to run. This is how you're to run. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20 in the New Living. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. As Rosaria Butterfield says, we all must wage holy war against the idols of our hearts. The idol of our historical epoch is this. Your sexual desires define you, determine you, and should always delight you. For the follower of Jesus, our question is, is our sexual desire and the expression of it delighting our Lord and Savior? I hate to tell you this, but there might only be two of you in the bedroom, but actually there's three. You. <laughs> Jesus is present with you. And in that moment of beauty, of sexual intercourse, if you want to exclaim out, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Well, why not? He gave you the gift that he's present there. Fourthly, if you're married, 
Celebrate sex as a gift from God. Fifth, if you're single, you can live a holy and an honorable life. The church has not done well in honoring singleness. We elevate marriage, and that's good, but we should also elevate singleness. And to all of you singles out there, I honor you because you will fight with sexual desire just as a married person will. And we should celebrate both. Those of us who are married need to ask for your forgiveness for implying that your singleness is something that is second best because it's not. Marriage is not the ultimate aim for everybody, but sadly, sometimes the church has promoted it. Many singles I've talked with, childless couples I've talked with, have expressed feeling they have the sense of not being complete, of not feeling in, in some way fully formed because they haven't been married or they haven't had children. There is pain, and I acknowledge that. However, there is Jesus who takes our pain when we offer it to him. And we grieve what could not, what, what hasn't been for us. And sixthly, what if you've compromised your sexuality in ways that don't fit with God's purpose for flourishing? There's hope for you. And I know, I just know, in this room, there'll be some of you, you don't want me to point a finger at you, you don't want me to say, I've got a word for you. You don't want to come to an altar call, but I know you're there. But when you become aware that you're not living a holy sexual life as Jesus taught us, there is hope. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And again, this is a work of the Holy Spirit because your hope is in Christ. Father, I pray that this message has brought hope to all of us. It's brought encouragement to all of us and how we move forward with sexual desire and our sexual attractions and how we honor you as followers of Jesus so that others could encounter you too. In Jesus' name, amen.